Aloha friends, it's Robert Stelic. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of the Blue Planet Show. On the Blue Planet Show, I interview wingfoil athletes, designers, and thought leaders, and I ask them questions not just about wingfoil equipment and technique, but I'm also trying to get to know them a little bit better, their background, what inspires them, and how they live their best life. You can watch this show on YouTube for visual content, or you can also listen to it as a podcast on the go. Just search for The Blue Planet Show on your favorite podcast app. I haven't come out with a new Blue Planet show for a while. It's because I've been super busy. You might have heard that we took over a new shop in Haleiwa on Wow's North Shore. It's formerly known as Tropical Rush. We just opened there and I've been super busy getting everything set up. It's really exciting, but it also takes a lot of time. So I haven't had as much time for the YouTube channel and the Blue Planet show. But I've been waiting for a long time for Alex Aguera to come onto the show and he finally had some time to do it. So I got a great interview with him. Alex is nutty about wing foiling. He's coming out with wing foil boards and wings. And of course, he plays such an important role in the development of the sport. He basically invented the foil that allowed Kai Lenny to do downwinders on a big long board and basically kick-started this whole sport of foiling in the surf and now with wings. So thank you for that, Alex. And without further ado, here's the interview with Alex. All right, Alex Aguera, thank you so much for joining me on the Blue Planet Show. So how are you doing today? Doing great. All right. It's early in the morning over here. How are you doing, Robert? I'm good. Yeah. So I'm on here on Oahu. You're on Maui at nine o'clock on a Wednesday. So yeah. So tell let's start a little bit with your background. Where did you grow up and how did you get into water sports and like early childhood to start from the very beginning? For getting into water sports, it started when I was to see about 14. We went on a family vacation. I grew up in Clearwater, Florida, by the way. <clears throat> And we went on a family vacation to the Virgin Islands, British Virgin Islands, and we're going to be on a sailboat and do the bear boat charters where you travel around to each of the islands. And it's, it was just a fun two-week trip in, the, in a place where we'd never been in places that were super clear water like that and crazy. It was just fantastic. But anyway, the captain of our boat, we had hired a captain who would sail us around to the, for the first week, and then we were on our own the second week. The, the guy would put this windsurfer in the water at this one place where we first started called Soper's Hole in Tortola. And yeah, they would start sailing around with him and his other captain buddy friend on this funny looking sailing craft that ended up being one of the original Baja style windsurfers. So this was before the original windsurfer. It was some of the first boards that Hoyle Schweitzer had made. And it looked like a big giant longboard made out of uh, you know fiberglass. But anyway, when we got back to Florida after the trip, my dad wanted to, you know, check this out as a, a possible get the kids doing this because we were riding motorcycles and stuff at the time. He wanted to get us off of motorcycles. So he calls up Hoyle Schweitzer, which was Windsurfing International or whatever they called themselves at that time. You know, this is really early. This is like 1975. And Hoyle tells him, he goes, Hey, I'll sell you six of them and make you a dealer. So it was like, okay, we were the first dealer in, in Florida and it all started from there. We started windsurfing right in uh, 1975. And that's how I got into all these other sports that have 
evolved since then. Oh, that's so cool. Uh, yeah, Hoyle Schweitzer is uh, Zane Schweitzer's grandfather who basically invented the sport and had the patent and everything. So your dad became the first dealer, the first windsurf dealer in Florida. Yeah. Okay. We were like District 9 or whatever. What are they? I can't remember. Fleet 9 or something. The, first, the ninth one in the United States. So... That's when the booms were still made out of wood and stuff like that. And the super booms were still out of wood. There was the dagger board was still out of wood. We hadn't progressed to composite looking white dagger board yet. And we hadn't invented harnesses yet, foot straps or anything. Okay. And then, okay. And then what happened next? After that, we pursued to get better and better at windsurfing. And my dad started to be the distributor for the Southeast United States. And we were really into windsurfing. Our whole life changed from, he was working at Honeywell, which is one of the firms down there in, in Florida. He was an engineer. And then he switched over to just going to be windsurfing. We're going to go all in into this windsurfing thing. So from there... We had a whole bunch of people in Florida that we were the original Florida windsurfing crew. We called ourselves the fearless flying Floridians there for a couple of years. And there was a real close crew there in the Clearwater, Sarasota area that we always raced against each other. And we just got better and better. And then pretty soon we were doing well in the national and world championships. Awesome. And then, so... How old were you when you did that kind of the racing and, and your first world championship, I guess? My first national championship was the following year. What Hoyle used to do back then was we would do these big district championships. And there was like maybe five or six throughout the United States. And whoever had won their district championship would get a free trip to the nationals. So the Nationals, the following year in 76, I'm 15 years old, uh, win a free airfare to Berkeley, California, where we're going to do the Nationals. And I traded it in for money to buy a bus ticket and pay for my hotel when I'm over there. So just imagine you're 15 years old, you're traveling in a Greyhound bus cross country, Get over there. You rent your own windsurfer. Back then, they would have rental packages where you just come in, rent your own gear, and then race. So at 15, that was quite an experience. To have my parents to be able to let me go all the way across the country and, and do that all by yourself was... Looking back at it now, back then, it seemed like, oh, that's okay. I could do this. But looking back at it now, I was like, God, I would never put my kids through that. <laughs> right. But that was a fantastic regatta because... What happened was, so it was 76, we're at Berkeley, we had a lot of wind and stuff, but it's the first time I get to meet Mike Waltz and Matt Schweitzer, who were like the gurus back then of windsurfing, right. because they had a, a thing called the Windsurfing News, which was like a little paperback, like a magazine. The early windsurfing magazine was a paperback called Windsurfing News, and it was always the Schweitzers and Mike Waltz and this and that. So we get over there, meet Matt and Mike. Ken Winter goes for his first championship with all the boys. And Robbie Nash does his first championship with all the boys. He's a little 12-year-old blonde kid comes in from Kai, Kailua. So it was like all of us got together for the first time at that So point. he was, 
Robbie Nash is two years younger than you about? Yeah, yeah. he's about okay. two years younger than me. Okay, so you were 14 and then there's someone even younger than you showing up. <laughs> okay. That's yeah. classic. Okay. <laughs> that was the, how that was, did that go? How, how did you do in that? In those oh, days? I got beat up. It was blowing really hard. And in Florida where I learned, I was just learning to, you know, race around and barely get planing kind of conditions, which we have in Florida coming up to that summertime. You get to Berkeley, it's blowing 20 to 25, sometimes gusting 30 in one of the races. And I don't think I got across the starting line. I got beat up. I was just ragdolling because you only had one, one sale and it was pretty big. I probably weighed, you know, 125 pounds at the time. And I remember there was these, there was these uh, sisters, the Swatek sisters. There was Susie and Martha and the girls just beat up on me. I was getting whooped up on by girls, man. It was like, <laughs> oh, man, it was, I was humbleized when I went there. But watching some of the stuff that had, was just then evolving, because Robbie had come over and he started doing this rail ride thing. It was the first time any of us see a rail ride. And I was like, oh, my God, what is that kid doing? Who is that kid? And then by the time the week had ended, Matt Schweitzer and I think Mike, had picked it up and Ken were all doing rail rides by the end of the week. They had figured it out. But when you first saw that, it's like, what the heck? That's something new. And then we did one of the, I think it was, could have been the very first freestyle event there. And a guy named Dennis Davidson, who was one of the original Kailua windsurfers, was putting a little teeny fin on his board. He was doing these super fast tacks and stuff. And we were like, wow. And he ended up winning the very first freestyle event. <laughs> Oh, and then, okay, so th that's awesome. And so and then how did that progress? And you became a professional windsurfer, right? Yeah, that, that was many years later. In about 1980, started getting paid to do windsurfing races by Windsurfing International and Hoyle Schweitzer. And we would go over to Maui for the first time. We were going to do the Pan Am World Cup was a real big race. It was for high wind and it was in Kailua mm -hmm. and the first year I didn't go to it was in 79 there wasn't any wind so they had to race in Waikiki the next year Hoyle flies us out I spend six weeks on Maui practicing with Mike Waltz he had told me hey you got to come over here and see this place it, it blows all the time he had just discovered Okipa within the last six months and he goes there's nobody around the wind's blowing all the time there's waves so my brother and I went over there and, and hung out with Mike for about six weeks. Then we went to Kailua to do the first real Pan Am race. It was blowing hard. And it's like the windiest day you've ever been in Kailua now is what we experienced for a whole week. And we were like, oh, my God, this place is gnarly. We were scared to death coming from Florida and seeing that kind of stuff. And that was one of the, the very first big high wind regattas in windsurfing history. Wow. Cool. And you said your dad was an engineer at Honeywell. So did you ever get any like formal education as an engineer or any kind of like that kind of thing? Or is it, are you just all self-taught on the, that side? Yeah, on that side, it's been mostly self-taught. I went to some business classes in community college after I got out of high school. But I moved over to Maui after that 1980 trip. I was like, I'm selling everything. I'm moving to Maui as soon as I can. And it took me about a year and a half to be able to pull it off. 
Mm -hmm. Then I moved back in 1982 to become a professional windsurfer. Nice. And then, so how was that getting started on Maui in the 80s? That was something. It was great. We were, I don't know if Paia very well, but back then there was, it was hardly anybody in Paia. There's no traffic light. We rented a place that's right next to where Mana Foods is now. Back then there wasn't any Mana Foods yet, but we rented a Quonset hut there. That is where they still store some of their, use it for storage of some of the stuff at the store. But anyway, there was at some time six of us staying in this Quonset hut for 250 bucks a month rent. So we're all paying like 40 bucks a month rent and living in Maui, nobody around. We're going to Hokeep every day and just having a blast. Nice. Nobody around on the road. Everybody you saw on the road was a windsurfer. You knew everybody's like, yeah. Now it's all tourists going by. <laughs> yeah, I always changed a lot. I lived there in, in the nine or late 80s and early 90s. I lived in Pahia too, like really close yeah. over there. So I, I remember those days. We lived in a basement apartment, <laughs> which is super cheap. <laughs> but yeah, and then driving old Maui cruisers, rusted out cars probably. Yeah. And all that. And then and then at that time, windsurfing was developing really rapidly and changing and stuff. And, and did you start making equipment back then already or how did that how did you get into business that business i used to i was sponsored by high tech surf sports and craig masonville who was the original guy for high tech used to shape all of my boards and we were riding the old asymmetrical windsurfing boards that we used to ride at hook i won a couple of the big contests at hookipa riding those and then i was always on the pro world tour for windsurfing and Eventually, it was hard to get the boards that you wanted because I had to start working for my French guys, Tiga, and they were making me boards. And then Craig was making me boards. And it it was hard to get boards on time sometime through the high-tech factory. And I said, oh, the heck with this. I'm going to try and start building boards myself. So Mm -hmm. in 1989 was probably the first time I was racing on one of my own boards. I remember racing in the gorge and uh, doing really well on that. And at the high-tech surf summer series, I won a couple races on my own board and I was all proud. I was like, oh yeah, I might be able to do this. So that's how long ago I started doing it. Nice. So those are slalom racing boards. Is, yeah, was, those were your were, first boards you built? Okay. Yeah, the first boards were slalom racing boards. The wave boards is a little bit more technical because it's easier to break those. So the first slalom boards, I didn't have any sandwich on them. They were just covered with carbon and I had some elaborate process for stretching the cloth over it and wetting it all out and and keeping the rocker shape and then learned how to do vacuum bagging and sandwich uh, construction after that. Yeah, I was uh, working for Hunt Hawaii in those days and we were he was still building boards with using polyester resin. But yeah. then I guess at that time it switched over to epoxy. So is that what do you use epoxy or polyester? My first boards from Masonville were always polyester. Uh-huh. Then we started switching to uh, epoxy in about 1985. I've got a slalom board that Dave Collingon, who was the laminator for high tech back then, we started experimenting with styrofoam and carbon fiber. And I raced the first one in 1985, I think it was. And that's where we're like, oh man, this is light, and stiff and strong and we're like the lightness was just incredible compared to polyester. 
And then I won the Gorge a second year in a row on that board. And I won the Japan World Cup that year in in the spring on that board. But we learned a lot of things about styrofoam construction because back then we would just sink the boxes into the styrofoam. And then by the time I had finished the Japan race, my deck box had collapsed into the board. There was a big hollow spot inside. And you know how you burn up that styrofoam. And, you know, we were learning a, a whole new foam core and what to do with it. Yeah. There was a lot of learning in that. <laughs> yeah. Lucky the board stayed together <laughs> until the race yeah. was over. <laughs> yeah, classic. And then you used some, like, vacuum bagging and all that kind of stuff, too, or just regular layout? Yeah, when, when I started, I got my first vacuum bag board by this guy, Gary Efferding, who was a... You might remember him. He was the guy who made Hypertech in the Gorge. And him yeah. and Keith Notary would do these, they called it a clam sandwich or something where they were doing vacuum bagging. But Gary, had, he was a friend of mine because we all grew up in the same area in Clearwater, Florida. And he was show, he made one of my you know original 12 foot long boards that we used to race in World Cup. And he was using this new aircraft technology called sandwich construction and he was the first guy that i saw doing sandwiches on boards Hmm. and slowly i learned how to do all of those process a lot of it was trial and error but eventually i was i had retired from the pro windsurfing tour and started running the pro windsurfing tour and then at the same time as being the race director I started building boards for top guys like Kevin Pritchard and Micah Buzinus. And those were all, they had to be super custom, super light sandwich boards. Oh, okay. And then I guess when kiting came around, you got into kite surfing or yeah, what, what happened there? The kite surfing, it was, it was funny because we were sitting over here. We're all windsurfers. Laird was still a windsurfer and He started playing with this kite and my other buddy Manu Bertin from France was starting to experiment with this kite thing. We'd see him at Hokipa. The guys would take off with these funny reel bars and all kinds of weird kiting stuff and start sailing this kite and go cruise down the coast and end up down at Kanaha or wherever. And I'm like, wow, that looks pretty interesting. What the heck is that? I didn't want to do it until somebody got back to the beach they started at. (laughs) I'm not really into this downwinder and you're out there on this thing out in the blue water with the, whatever could go wrong and paddling around with the shark. So, okay, if you could get back to where you started, that's when I finally started getting into it. And that was, I don't know, 97 or 98 or whatever. Somebody was finally making it back. But what really got me into it was Flash Austin had moved over from Florida. He was lived in Daytona and he came over and he was this new kite guru guy and i would watch him jump and he's 25 feet in the air and just hang in there and then come down real soft uh flash used to have great kite control he still does and i was just watching that going windsurfing if you jump 25 feet in the air you come down hard i don't care what kind of stuff you're doing it's a there's an impact so right. i was like god i really want to do that that's what really got me interested in kiting was watching flash land softly i'm like okay now i, I want to go boosting too 
So when you got into it, did, did they still have those reels where you had to reel in the kite if you get if you uh, drop it in the water or something like that? Yeah, those guys were still using that, but I Brett Lickle and all those guys had their kite reels, and I'm like, no, I'm not playing with that kite reel because they look like you eat it. You know, there's all this metal and stuff in your face. I started out with one of the two line Whippica kites, and then progressed to a two line Nash kite. And then eventually we started making four line kites and it got a little bit easier. Those original two line whippicas and stuff, they were all that was around, but they were a little bit dangerous. Well, there was a lot of accidents in those early days. It took a while before, at least five years before the kites got safe enough to where people weren't hurting themselves so bad anymore. Yeah. And, and then I guess around that same time, the, the strap crew, I guess, Laird and Rush Randall, those guys started foiling, right? Towing foiling and jaws and stuff like that. So yeah. when was the first time you tried foiling and how did you get into that? Foiling, I didn't try foiling until much later. Those guys were all into these being in bindings and strapped into this little board and everything weighed about 60 pounds, it seemed like. And big aluminum mass and just super heavy. And then, of course, these guys were real radical. They were like, hey, we're going to go to Jaws. We're going to ride out of Spreck. It was like, you're all in or you're not. But I'm like, <laughs> they're like, hey, Alex, you got to try this. And I'm like, no way, man. I'm not going to be strapped into that thing and going over the falls. Man, that looks dangerous. But those guys, they, they really were into it at the time. Right. And we were all towing, too, at the time with our little, you know, tow strap boards. And I remember one day I, we were out at Spreckelsville. And Rush Randall is towing around. It's pretty small for a tow day. We like to tow when it's eight foot plus and have some fun. And it's four feet occasionally and you're waiting for a set. But Rush is going around in circles just on his foil, cruising around. And he's doing backflips going out with this thing while he's being pulled with the jet ski. And we're like, man, what the heck? Rush is having a lot more fun than we are. <laughs> so that was one of the first times where I really looked at it and go, wow, that, that, this could be fun. Okay. But for me to actually get into it myself, I was kite foiling at the time. I had started, this is a, it was a funny story because I had stopped kiting for like about five years. Jesse Richmond, who was the world champion at the time, and his brother, Sean, they were like the best kiters on Maui. And Jesse goes, Hey, you got to start making some kite or some kite race boards for us. I'm getting beat by girls out on the course. We just started this kite racing thing. So Jesse got me into kiting again. So I built a few boards. Then I had to test them with those guys. And, and that's how I got back into kiting again. So this lasted for about maybe three years of kite racing. That was the one that we had the big three fins on it. And you're racing upwind. So then my buddy in Martha's Vineyard was started foiling. Back then they were riding all kinds of funky foils, but it was the early days of foils. Most of them came out of France back then. And he goes, Alex, I need you to make me a kite foil board and I'll trade you this foil. You got to start getting into foiling and you, I'll trade it for a board. So I did this with my buddy, Rob Douglas. He's the world speed record holder for kiting back in the day. And he goes, okay, we're going to do a trade. So that was my introduction into kite foiling. And he gave me this foil that he had already beat up. He weighs about 235 and breaks the heck out of everything. And it was all wobbly and I had to keep fixing it. I was breaking it and stuff. And that's how I got 
my first initiation into foiling and how to build foils because I was always fixing it. And then I started making my own wings and that's that was started me all into foiling. Yeah. And then those foils for kite foiling back then were tiny, right? Really small wings and really long masts and so on. Or is that kind of what you started on? That's what we all started on because back then it was the same thing with Laird and those guys. We had these really thin foils because we were only interested in speed. We wanted to go faster and faster. Nobody wanted to make something to go slower. So everything back then, they, was, they were small, they were thin. Everything was like the fast race foils were less than 13 millimeters thick. They were 14 or 15 millimeters was a fat foil. So that's what, that's what we used to ride. Yeah. And then, at, and did you, when you made your own foils, did you like CNC them out of G10 or what kind of, how did you make your own foils? Basically what I did in the beginning was I would take some existing foil that I had and then I would reshape it and try to figure out how to make molds. So I was making molds and figuring out how to do that. It was a whole different process. I was used to building boards and you know, sandwich construction, vacuum bag. Now it had changed to, hey, you got to learn how to make molds and make these wings. So Hmm. it was a big learning curve. I made a lot of mistakes. I burned up a lot of molds. I did all kinds of, you know, crazy stuff. It was just like learning to build boards. You got, there's a big learning curve, but that's what I ended up doing. And I would take some of the wings that I got and I, I wanted it bigger or smaller or whatever, and I would reshape them and then make molds off of them. And then when did you actually start your business, the GoFoil business and, and start making foils to sell? Like, when was that? Yeah, I think for GoFoil, I probably was in maybe 2013 or 14. First, I put the Agara name on my kite foils. Then I went to Vietnam to have my buddies over there at Kinetic. I taught them how to build the foils, and then I changed it to go foil. I had this idea, I'm over there with the boys in Vietnam, and they don't speak English super well. So I'm telling them, what do you guys think about this name? It's like go foil, just go foil. And they were like, yeah, I don't get it. I had to go for it by myself because I couldn't get anybody to confirm that, hey, that's a good idea at the time. But I got my buddies over there to make me the logos and stuff. That's where I came up with the name GoFoil was when I first went over to Vietnam and started putting it in production. Nice. And that's way before any of the foils that everybody knows as GoFoil now. Right. So the Kinetic Factory was making your first kite surfing foils, kite, kite foils. Yeah, the ones in production. At first, I was building it all here custom. Right. And and I started building boards and the foils over there at Kinetic. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna screen share a little bit here, and then at some point you made a foil for Kyleni, and then he posted this video that kind of took. I, I guess now it has over five million views, which is just amazing. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But can you tell us a little bit about the backstory behind behind this and how that all came about? There's a long story behind that if you want to go into it the we want to hear all about it okay in the beginning this was about maybe eight months prior to this kai was riding my kite foils and we decided that we were going to put one of them on his one of his stand-up boards so 
we put a uh, tuttle box in one of his, I think he had a eight foot stand up board or seven, six or something at the time. And we put the kite foil on it and he was going to go stand up foil this thing. And I never really heard back from Kai about it. He comes back about six or eight months later and he goes, Hey, Alex, we got to redo that thing about going downwind foiling again. And I go, well, what happened with the first foil? And he goes, well, it's dangerous and there's not enough lift. And it was really hard to ride. And I'm like, okay, let me think about it. And I'll try and come up with something. We'll try it again. So what ended up happening was I spent two weeks taking one of the old kite foils that I had that I really liked that had the most lift. And I kept changing it and adding on. I had this idea that we got to rethink all of this, that thin foils is not what you need to get going under your own power. We need something that's going to be a slower foil that can lift up more weight at a slow speed. And I'm thinking, shoot, these big aircraft planes that are lifting tanks and stuff go by having bigger, thicker wings and different foil sections. And I started trying to mimic that on one of my kite foils. So I would build it up with Bondo and AB foam, reshape it and glass it and kept playing with it. And it took about two weeks before I finally said, okay, you've, you've done enough remodeling here because you're never going to get it perfect. You have little bumps here or whatever. And you're like, okay, let's try it. So I call up Kai or I send him a text and Kai is, oh, I'm in LA. I'm on my way to Europe. I'm doing the indoor in, in Paris with Robbie. We're doing this windsurfing indoor. Right. And I'm like, okay, I'll try it out and see how it works. So I go down to Sugar Cove, which is here on Maui, which is a kind of a bumpy, funky wave when it's fairly big. And it's like head high, peaky sets all over the place and kind of gnarly for trying to foil for the first time. I go out and say, what the heck? I'm going for it. And actually, Jeffrey and Finn Spencer are in the water surfing. And my, my dentist Barkley's in the water. So we, we got all these guys witnessing me going out there and trying to kill myself. So I and go out on this big stand up paddle board or how, what did you put the foil on? Yeah, I had made a board that was, I think it was eight, six or nine foot was my stand up board. I put a tuttle box in it about 24 inches from the tail. And I'm thinking, okay, this should be good where I want to stand on it will give me a little bit of lift because I moved it forward compared to what I do on my kite foil. Mm -hmm. And I use the kite mass though, which is 38, 39 inches tall. I've right. got this new front wing, which ended up being the original Kai wing. And so I put that on there, go out. I had a tail wing that I didn't like for kiting because it had too much lift. So I used that for the sup foil because I needed more lift. So I'm like, okay, I'll try that, see if it works get out there. All of a sudden I rise up and I'm like, I got plenty of lift. And then I roll over and I'm looking at these wings in my face because <laughs> I'm on this giant mass. And it's just, I kept looking at the wings and I'm like, after about five near misses of hitting that wing with my face, I go into the beach and I'm thinking to myself, now I know what Kai is talking about. Now I know why it's dangerous. The mass is too tall. So I go back to the shop cut the thing in half. I cut it down to 18 inches or something yeah. and go back to lowers at Kanaha the next day and actually take my GoPro and film myself riding. And I, I remember I went over an Eagle Ray or something that day, got a nice video. 
And I'm going like at times almost 50 yards. I'm like, whoa, I could do this. And it was just like amazing. And a couple of my buddies were in the water and saw that. Buck, Buck saw it and Jerry Rodriguez saw it. And these guys were just like, they couldn't believe it. They're like, oh my God, he's doing it. But anyway. Is this on your YouTube channel? I put it in Facebook back then. Oh, Facebook? Okay. Yeah, I put it in Facebook. I've got it somewhere. I can find it. I don't think I ever put it in YouTube. I don't know. I might have. Yeah. But I don't know if I, I can go that far back, but yeah. I tagged Kai on it. And then Kai saw it. He goes, oh, wow, man. I've got to try that as soon as I get back. So he was all stoked. And then when Kai came back, you put Kai on the same board, the same thing. And it's hard to describe. Right now, we take it for granted that, what, are you watching Tom Brady? <laughs> <laughs> That's a great one. I couldn't believe it. That's ridiculous. But anyway, <laughs> well, I'm a big fan of the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, so he's brought it back to my town. So he, he's like a hero. He was always a hero for me, but now he's like a superhero. Yeah. But anyway, Kai comes back, jumps on the same equipment, and it's hard to describe. The first time you see a guy who's foiling and he goes past the peak goes way out to the left comes back across the peak goes way over to the right and keeps going back and forth and you're looking at that going what the heck is he doing it's just it was mind-boggling to see somebody do that for the first time and i was like oh my god what the heck's going on here maybe we have something here and kai is just a freak he was just doing stuff that was unbelievable at the time and i was just like oh, maybe I should make a patent out of this. This is, It was just like a revelation seeing something like that for the first time. Yeah, and that the first foil I got, we, Jeff, my friend Jeff Chang and I tried it on a kite foil at first behind a jet ski and stuff, and we were really struggling and same thing, like almost killed ourselves falling into the foil and stuff like that. Yeah. But then when we got the first kite foil, that was like, oh, this is so much easier. But it's funny because at that time, the Kai foil seemed like a huge foil, but now it's actually kind of a small foil. Most people start on a much bigger foil than that, right? Yeah, exactly. That's a really small foil now. Right. And getting back to the story, how that evolved to your video. Okay, Kai was just riding in the waves at Sugar Cove doing this stuff. Henry Spencer took a video of him that was, you know, like the first time where you see this going crazy. And then he starts going, he, he goes, okay. We got to, I got to talk to Rob. We got to put this on one of my downwind boards because we tried it on my downwind board, the same board that we were riding in the surf. And I'd go out there with Kai. He has his 12.6, his regular Nash board. We're paddling downwind. I cannot get up to save my life. No way, especially on a Kai foil. So he goes, hey, let me try that. Give it to Kai. And Kai proceeds to get up like seven times on the way down to Sugar Cove, like immediately, even on that stand-up board. I'm like, the kid's a freak. He just paddles. His weight-to-strength ratio is just just off the chart when he's paddling. So he's cruising all over the place. We get all the way down to Sugar Cove. He takes off from the outside, which is like at least 150 yards outside, and he cruises all the way into the beach. And we're just like, wow, this is something. He's spends the next week trying to talk Robbie into being able to turn one of his Nash boards and put a total box in it. So I go, okay, we'll do that. Just keep talking to Robbie, see if you can pull it off. Eventually Robbie gives him the, okay, okay. You can do it on that board and 
blah, blah, blah. So we put a tunnel box in at 48 inches because Kai says, that's where I stand. I think that's going to be the good place to put the tunnel box. So we put it in there. I get this text. He's down at the harbor practicing and he goes, Houston, we have a problem. And then he goes on to describe that I'm going plenty fast enough to get foiling, but the tail is hitting the water and I can't get up just because the tunnel box is so far forward, his tail would drag and bring him down again. So he goes, okay, let's put a tunnel box, you know, at 24 inches like it is on this, this, the other board and we, we should be able to get up. And I go, why don't we just cut the tail off and see about it? Like in this video, you can see how I cut the tail off of that board. Yeah. Put like a little diamond. It off. Yeah, yeah. So the next day he shows up at the shop with the board. I said, yeah, we'll put the tunnel box in. And he goes, Hey, I think you're right. Let's cut the tail off and just leave the tunnel box where it is. That'll give me less board after he thought about it overnight. And then within about two weeks, he makes this crazy video of him just jamming down the coast on this. And one of the, one of the scenes from the video that really caught my eye was Dave Kalama and Junior, his, his cousin, are in a two-man canoe which is two-man outrigger, which is the fastest boat downwind, usually in Maui, the paddle. Right. And he goes right by them. And it was just like, oh, my God, what is going on there? It was just amazing. It was like, oh, we got possibilities now. Yeah, just yeah. the way I always cruise. That's and kind he, of the, the dream to be able to just surf the open ocean swells and just be able to keep going indefinitely. And then that was something that Laird had always talked about. We always played volleyball and we were always around together. We always played at Brett's house and Laird would always talk about that going, I think we're going to be able to just cruise for miles down the, the, the coast on one of these foils. And then like 10 or 15 years later, this is what we were. Yeah, that's amazing. And then, yeah, and then what happened after that? Pretty soon after that, Nash started making foils as well. So how did you feel about that? I did not feel super stoked about that. You know, it was like, hey, we've got it all right here. You could just, we could build it for you, put your logo on it, and you could go from there, and then I could make some money out of it. And Robbie was he's always do it all yourself and keep it inside the company, and they wanted to do it all themselves, and Mickey... He had told me one day, he goes, Alex, are you really going to be bummed if we do this all by ourselves? Because Robbie wants to do it himself. And I'm like, I'll be bummed, but we'll still be friends. <laughs> right. And I guess you did, you did that with Starboards for a while, right? You put the Starboards logo on or co-branded with Starboards. Yeah. Yes, exactly. I know some of our yeah. early yeah. GoFoils were branded with Starboard logos as well. Yeah. yeah. So. We had done, a, a lot of them were just GoFoil and a lot of them were starboard GoFoil. So there was, both of them were branded at the same time. For a while there, we were, in the early days, we were connected with starboard. Mm -hmm. And then you got a patent on the, on your foil design. So how come you, ne did you ever try to enforce that? Obviously, like now there's so many companies making foils. Is there any way you, like it? anything you ever were able to do with that patent or was it just not feasible? They never really pursued it. There was a lawyer out there who wanted to pursue it and work at his work on his dime and then split it 90. He takes 90% of the profits we get, then we could do something, but it's something where you don't really want to jump into that game unless it's financially feasible. We've got patents right. on it that patented all kinds of aspects of the 
surf foiling and stand-up foiling and basically as being a new thing and thickness of foils being thicker than the, the, the norm and all of that. So there's a bunch of aspects to the patent, but we never really pursued that to where it gets expensive and you'd rather... Right. No, if somebody that. wants to take that on and get their own money, <laughs> they could go for it. You would do a 90-10 split, huh? 90-10 <laughs> split. Get the, you hey, know, hey. get the lawyers going. Some lawyers out there that would do it. <laughs> it would try anyways. You know, because the normal rate is 8% royalties that all the companies should be paying you. They could get 90% of the 8%. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, that's just one of those things. In the beginning, we went for that patent too. I was like, wow, this could really be something big. And is it a utility patent or a design patent? Do you know? It's, God, I'm not even sure which one it is. It's the, the more expensive one. <laughs> and that's a utility patent. That means, yeah. that, that means it doesn't have to be a, like, even if it's not an exact copy, if it's the same concept, then yeah, basically. Yeah. Yeah, that's what we went for. And we have a big time patent lawyer firm that, that did it. But it's and, hard to enforce, obviously, because yeah. you have to prove that yeah. it's in front of going to chase it on their own dime instead of you paying for these lawyers. Because the lawyers, you know, that gets expensive. We've got the patent in the U.S., China, and Australia. We didn't pursue the other countries. You got to pursue every country separately. And then how? And then how did you did it evolve? Like I know in the early days, like everybody wanted to buy foils, and they, you couldn't just couldn't get them. Like they, you couldn't make them fast enough. And like, how did you ramp up production? And what kind of issues did you run into? Yeah, you're in the early days you're having a lot of problems with how to construct this and how to keep it from breaking and me always making windsurfers in the early days i really hated warranties that will end up ruining your business so you do all of this work and then you got to give the guy another board or fix his board or whatever so in the beginning we didn't even want to put out the product until we were pretty sure that we weren't going to break it so that stalls your production and stuff and then once you do ramp it up to get full-on production going, then you end up, you have to watch out that things are evolving so fast and not make too much of the something that might be outdated by the time you get it. Because it takes a long time for these factories to build our stuff. What happened with us, which was unique for, with us, is that my two brother-in-laws build canoes over in China. My one brother-in-law owns the factory because he got burned by some Chinese factory he was working with. So he decided to do his own US-owned Chinese factory. And then he got to jump through all the hoops to do that. But anyway, they were making the canoes there. And he makes a bunch of different models that you see around in Hawaii. And- um, Is this Brian Dalby you're talking about? Or? Brian Dalby is my, the manager of the factory, my other bro yeah. uh, brother-in-law. Okay. Michael Giblin is my other sister's husband that owns the factory. He's the genius behind putting it all together. He's the guy that I do all the CAD work with and building the foils and the wings and stuff. He's really super smart and he can pull all of this stuff together and has the drive to do it where people go, oh, wait a minute, that's way overwhelming. I'm not going to do my own Chinese factory. That's going to be too many things to overcome. But anyway, what happened was, I, I had been building stuff in Vietnam and it was getting to where it was hard to get stuff out of Vietnam 
fast enough and I was seeing that these foils, you're gonna need a lot of these. I'm gonna need thousands of these things because it's in hot demand. So I asked my brother-in-law, Michael, hey, do you wanna start building these at your factory in China? And I showed him the video of Kai and the 5 million views. He's, oh my God, he just went by Dave Kalaman Jr. on the two man. He goes, <laughs> okay, we're all in, let's do it. And that's how it started. And now it's a whole family business and we build all of the main hydrofoils in China at his factory. Hmm. So I guess in the beginning, like I remember the first one I got started to crack right by the mass base, like uh, between the base and the tunnel um, box. Yep. And then also on the fuselage, that's, those were the main points where a lot of, um, you had a lot of issues, right? Yeah, you have issues like that in the beginning where there's a, it's a process of trying to get your carbon fiber loaded just right and the direction ability of your 45 degree angles and how much materials in there and the compression. There's a lot of issues that you had to overcome. Mm -hmm. uh, like the first one I got, we get a, one from the factory in, in China comes over and we had all of the fiberglass or carbon aligned in a, the wrong direction and I snapped the front wing right off. It was like I was riding right, all of a sudden my front wing's gone. Oh. And it's just a matter of you've got to have fibers going the right way in the 45s and everything to work perfectly, especially with prepreg is a whole different animal where there are layers and layers put together in the mold. Mm -hmm. So they're made as a unidirectional. Think of it as the, the strands are unidirectional. Like these are the strands of the carbon. Mm -hmm. And it's each sheet is like this. You can line it like this or whatever, and you cut these all, put them in the mold in a certain way. So right. there was a lot of learning curves to getting that all right in the beginning and how much should be here and how much should be there and where are the weak points and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, we went through all that too. So very frustrating to get stuff back that just breaks, right? Yeah. I know. Warranties will kill you. Yeah. And then, okay, and then, oh, sorry. And then, and then what happened then to develop, what was the development after that? Like, how did you ramp it up and, and become a global brand? In the beginning, it was easy because nobody else had any foils. So we were, we went globally right in the beginning and we were selling, shoot, a couple thousand or 3000 foils in those first couple years, just because we were the only guys who had foils. So that was easy. So then we got around worldwide fairly easy in the beginning. Then it becomes harder and harder because you've got 10 guys get in and want to make foils. Then you got 20 guys who come in and make foils. Then you got 50 guys. You got people you've never even heard of are trying to build foils. And everybody wants to jump in on this bandwagon. It's like the early days of windsurfing or stand-up. Everybody jumped into the, the show to try and be a player. So that makes it harder. So you've got to you've got to keep up really good quality. Don't you don't want warranties to come back to ruin the business, but at the same time, you're trying to make faster stuff or easier stuff or whatever and try and keep progressing is the way we try to do it over here. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then, so you got into more high aspect foils and fast, faster designs, thinner foils, smaller foils, and so on. What, do you, what are you working on now? What's like your latest, latest designs and what's, what do you see for the future? What we're going to do in the future is we're going to try and we've, the last couple of years, we've gone into speed. We've tried to get faster and faster and we've made a bunch of the 
the, the wings to go a lot faster. Cause in the beginning, everybody was hitting on us going, Oh, your foils are outdated. They're so slow and this and that and blah, blah, blah. So then we worked on our speed. So now we've gotten to where we're like about the fastest foils out there. So now we want to try and get back to without losing some of that, you'll have those lines of fast, easy foils to ride, but then something that is really easy to ride. It doesn't accelerate on the turn, something that's a little bit user-friendly for the intermediate type guys. The guys that are really advanced can ride these, you know, our NL wings, which are super fast and turny and everything. But the, the intermediates get a little bit shy away from that. It's We're going to make the GL is a really good one for winging if for the intermediate people. But I'm going to try for next year to make something that's super easy. So we're going to have a, a different line. We'll have three different lines, basically. So uh, are you making a foil that's specifically designed for wing foiling? Or are they all, all around foils for you know st- prone foiling, stand-up foiling, and wing foiling? Or or just depending on the size of the wing or like how yeah they all can cross over so we're finding out that you want one that's supposed to be a racing foil okay so we're thinking downwind or or racing for wings or or towing falls into that category if you're in really big waves you need something super fast Mm -hmm. and then you have the other wings like the nl which are great for stand-up they're great for surfing the smaller ones, the prone surfing, but they're really good for winging also. So it's funny how all of them, you can almost do every one of the sports on each one of those wings. It's just a different style of riding you have to do or a different size rider's weight might like the bigger wing where the smaller guy's like, oh my God, I can't ride that thing. I need a little tiny thing. But all of them seem to cross over. I can tow on on different size waves on any of the wings i can wing on any of the wings i need particular amount of a lot of wind for the small toe wings but on the race wings like when i'm paddling downwind a lot of the wings cross over to me paddling downwind foiling too so there's it's funny how they all can they all have their moments and can cross over yeah so i guess the same design just in different sizes works for different things i guess when you're downwind foiling you probably need a little bit more surface area a bigger wing to get get it going yeah yeah definitely cool yeah and then how did you get into wing foiling what i know you were one of the early wing foilers you were on an ozone and stuff like that posting videos of you riding at lanes and stuff like that so how did you get into that uh, wing foiling started with the way it started over here was Flash Austin was always kiting down there with us and, and riding uh, kite foils and stuff. Just decided to put together this funky wing thing with some windsurfing battens and some old kite material and just put this whole thing together. And he goes, Alex, I need one of your foils. I think I can get this thing foiling. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, yeah, I've been hiding down at the sewer plant trying testing this thing. <laughs> so get him a foil on it. He comes up there. We take pictures of him. These are the first things we see of the new evo- evolution of wing foiling where it started. So we kite and rode this thing at the same place where Ken Winters right next door to us. He does all of his kite testing there too. And then Ken saw him one day and he's oh my God, what is that? I'm going to put that in production. I'm going to build a couple of those and we'll start doing experimenting with it. Yeah. So Ken takes it from there. 
and puts the boom on it because Ken's an old-time windsurfer and he just liked the boom. And the very first wings that I tried were Ken Winter's Duotone wings. And that's how we first learned. Alan Cadiz got me down there. One day we were down there with Alan at Kanawha and he goes, here, go try it. And then I proceeded to to get up and cruise around. After about 10 minutes, I was riding it pretty well because I already was a really good kite for there. So it was easy for me to learn it. I used to be a windsurfer. And then my wife tried it and stuff. And then from there, it was like, oh, my God, this is fun. So the first year I went to the gorge with it was maybe three years ago. And I was on uh, Duotone. And then I got to try Ozone for the first time. They had a couple Ozones there at the show. And they gave me one of those. So then I was using the Ozone and the Duotone at the hatchery and just having a blast. I was like, oh, my God, this is fun. It's like the early days of windsurfing where we were, everybody was super stoked and feeding off of each other. And it was just a bunch of fun between everybody. And they're all talking about, hey, what are you riding? What, I'm, I learned this. What should I do? I'm having problems with this. And it's like the whole same atmosphere of the early windsurfing days. Yeah, and people are very open about sharing their ideas and their knowledge and what they learned. Yeah, it's pretty yeah. cool that it's not as close hold as in some other um, disciplines, I think. Yeah, and then what, so what are the, like behind you, I see those two boards. Like, what, is, what are you working on now? What's, what are your latest products? And yeah, tell, tell me what you're up to. Latest thing now is we'll be getting in our boards from the Kinetic Factory. I'm working with the Kinetic Factory again that used to build my kite boards to start making uh, wing boards. They're full sandwich. Kinetic is known for making some of the best boards in the world as far as a factory goes. They're super solid. Anybody who's gotten any Jimmy Lewis boards in the last five years knows that they're built very well. So we get a container of those come in. Yep, that you can see the, the, all the boards in the first container will have a tuttle and a plate. There's all kinds of foot straps placements. You can see that has a handle there in the middle and just the typical things that you need to have on a a wing board. As you can see how the volume of this is, they're pretty volume forward on my boards. I like to have a lot of volume up forward when I'm winging because we're going shorter and shorter boards and you have a tendency when you're standing up forward, the board goes underwater. Like you come down off a plane, then all of a sudden the front goes under. It does a submarine. So as you can see, some of these. You can can see you show them. us? Yeah, maybe pick one up and uh, move that chair out of the way and show us the shape a little bit. Yeah, let's look at the. This is a 105 liter board. It's five six, and you can see how we have a lot of thickness up in the front of here. Because when you get to five six, you get up forward. If you have the traditional thinner noses that look really cool. They sink underwater when you stand up here. Right. Basically, we move the flotation up forward. It's a little bit bigger, fuller outline up forward as compared to the tail. So it's a reverse of what a lot of the boards are. They have bigger tails, a lot of float in the back. I like to have the flotation up forward because we've gone shorter and shorter. And it's easier to stand on something when it's like that. This one you can see has the traditional like windsurfing style foot straps. This is 45 degrees here, and I have one strap in the back. I like to ride windsurfing style. It's really easy to, you know, switch your feet and stuff. You go from strap. A lot of people right. are come from a surfing background and have a problem 
with you know switching your feet. So then you have foot straps that can go straight like you're you know just going to go one direction. So it has the inserts for going riding with just one set of foot straps, or you've got the windsurfing style where you can switch your feet and go port and starboard. So I recommend people to learn how to go both ways because if you get in a problem where you're trying to get up and really like wind toes up, you're crossed up on your bad tack, it's hard to get up like that. And it's hard to go up wind like that. So if you do get into light winds, it's easier to switch your feet and yeah. learn how to do that. Better to learn in the beginning because once you start going just toe side all the time, you never switch your feet again. The deck is pretty much flat or do you have like concave in the deck? Any kind of- No, I like the flatness. I don't yeah. like concave so much. I want everything to be a flat platform for my feet and nothing weird. And I don't concave too, because I'd rather, if you fall on it, I want it to be flat and not have a little bit of a rounded edge to hit your shins yeah. on your knees or whatever I'd rather also have... getting back on is easier on a flat deck i find yeah and you don't hit your elbow or whatever on that edge yeah exactly yeah. like i used to ride on connor baxter's downwind board he's got this big scoop out all those starboard yeah. at the scoop bar and i'd fall on that thing i'm like oh my god i just whack myself with this heavy concave so yeah. it's kind of like that system. I don't like it. So I figure if it works, don't make it all fancy. Like the same thing with the bottom shapes are yeah. real flat. So that it has an easier release to pop up when you're planing in, in real light wind. If you get is, it, is it flat all the way to the nose or do you have a little bit of convex in the nose? No, it's pretty, it's all pretty much flat, the whole and thing. And soft rails? Soft rails. Front, a rail. What are the rails in the back towards the tail of the board? What are the it's you know a little bit round here, yeah. and then you have a little bit of a kick in the last behind your tunnel box and your plates. Uh -huh. A little kick. Nice. And, and then can you show the, the profile, the contour? Like you said, it's a little bit thinner in the tail than in the nose. No, they're about the same thickness, but okay. most of the now are thicker in the front and thinner in the in the right. But you, you keep yeah. about the same thickness. Yeah, keep about the same thickness. Don't go crazy with making a super thick. I don't like the way that feels when I'm winging. I want a lot of float up four because most of the time on these short boards, like this board is my four six. I tow with this and I wing with this and can kite with this also. But even with this board, it's one of the things too, when you have your boards, you want the Foam flow to be about the same so that when you're sinking it, especially on a sinker, it sinks evenly. Because on one of my boards, I have a pretty big, it's a little bit thicker in the front than the back. And I float like this. And I go down and it's hard when you're sinking like that. And I yeah. have to get really far forward and concentrate on the nose going down. So there's all types of trial and error into figuring out what really feels good for me. And I've always made my own board so I can go ahead and make a board that week and test it again. So I don't make custom boards anymore for other people, but the family still gets it. Nice. Thanks for showing us. I'm going to show the um, screen share again real quick. Oh, sorry. Let me, let me go back to that. So are you going to show your bottom here? You can see all of what the... Okay. So, oh, you got the measurement for where to place the foil and the bottom handle. Yeah, you I just guess. got a guide there. So like you use your, this is how far you are from the tail mm -hmm. the measurements. And then if you like your plate in a certain position, you remember what your number is and go, okay, I like it at seven inches or whatever it is mm -hmm. for the back of your plate. The 
tunnel, of course, goes in just one place, and then you got a nice handle. It's nice to have a handle on a wingboard because getting in and out of the water is much more convenient. And then on the deck, you don't have a handle, though. So No, I don't like the handle on the deck because when I'm stepping all over the place and my toe gets in there, I've had a couple problems with almost breaking my toe. So okay. I do not like having it on the deck. Yeah. But then I guess when you're carrying it without the foil attaches off balance, but you can, I guess you can still carry it with that bottom. Yeah, handle. it's a little bit off balance, but you could still carry it. It feels right. a little bit nose heavy, especially on the, the bigger 6.0. Yeah. Because it has so much board, but you can always, the smaller boards really. Yeah, not that hard to carry. Really. Yeah, and I was going to show the different sizes you have available here. I guess it, you have a 4.6 by 44 liters, 5.0 by 87 liters, 5.6 by 106 liters, and then 6.0 by 134 liters. Yeah, so four different sizes, and and when are those going to be available? Next week, I think the container arrives next week. Could be the following week, depending on how much we get stuck with trucking and customs in Honolulu. It's already in Honolulu, so I'm just going through the process of getting it over here. Nice, and then oh, I think I had this on here too. So tell us a little bit about the, and you're also making your own wings now, right? Is that correct? Yeah. Is this one of your prototypes? This is one of the prototypes. This is the actual version of the 3.5, which will, it'll have stripes on it. It's got all the logos and stuff. And I moved the windows closer to the middle strut on the production style. But I've been using this thing since, I want to say February or something. It's the, the quality of it feels really good. I haven't stretched it out and it hasn't blown apart. And I, I put it through some hell. This day is probably a regular 25 to 30 knot day. And just imagine some of the days were, were 35 to 40 and I'm still using that wing. So they're built super solid. And what I like about my wings is what we did was make the bladders a little bit bigger to make them stiffer. So when you sheet in with these, Things are not moving all over the place like some of the wings. We got a little bit more of a, it feels like a windsurfing sail. You sheet in and it doesn't move all over the place. It's solid. Yeah. And it makes it more powerful too. I'm, I'm the Armstrong wings are like that. They have the really thick bladders, which make it more rigid and powerful. It seems. Yeah. And it, it looks like you made the, the wing tips pretty squared off. So you have less of a wingspan too. Is that one of the things you, you were working on or just maybe go talk us through the different prototypes you tried out and what, what you learned from trying different things. We did with, this is basically our, we call it our elliptical style. It's more of a standard style, but we do bring the wing tips closer together than some of the wings. Cause you'll notice how on F1 or Armstrong have pretty long wing tips and you have a tendency to touch those in the water very easily. So my wing tips are brought together a little bit more on the, ellipticals so you got a, a little bit more cord in the middle so think of it as a longer strut in the middle shorter wingspan just to make it easier to turn without touching your tips mm -hmm. then we have a square model which is the one that i was riding at hokipa the one day you might have seen that but the square model is better for really light winds so that when you're, you get on those bigger wings and you're having problems pumping to get up, it's a day like you're, you just want to get foiling, like that one. That's the square model. You see how that one's way more square than that elliptical style you just saw? Yeah, this looks almost a little bit more like the, that 
Slick Wing, yeah, the new Ken Winners Duotone one, yeah, that has right. like a really chuck. That looks closer to a slick where you, yeah. you square off the ball just so that what I like about this is I do a lot of windsurfing style wave riding. Yeah. So when I'm turning like that, when I, I call it sheeting in, you can keep the tip further up out of the water. But the main advantage of this one, forget all this hot dogging stuff that I'm doing here, is when it's really light wind, you have problems pumping up to get onto foil. It's a day where you're out, it's, hey, I wonder if I can get foiling today. And you go and bump and you keep touching your tip in the water and right. it stops the whole progression of trying to get up. You got to start all over again. So the square tips are made for that to where when you pump it, it's easier to pop up to foil and have a lot less problem of the wing tip touching while you're trying to accomplish this. That's the biggest advantage of these square yeah. models. So the square models are made in the bigger sizes, like a four five, a five five, and a six five. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And that's one of the things about some of the earlier designs is when you think you could use a bigger size to uh, get it going in lighter winds, but then then the wingtips were so wide that you couldn't really create a lot of power with it because it has because it's like the wingtips is drag and you can't really bring it verticals to you give you that forward power to just lift up, but you can't really get that forward momentum with it. And that's where that, I think the square design makes a lot of sense. So you actually have two different wing designs or is it just by, by size or yeah, how, how does that work? Different wing styles, but it's by size where they convert over to the other one. So my elliptical size goes two, 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 seven, two, seven is like a mainstay here in Maui. Everybody, when they get lit up over here, the two, seven is really nice. I ride the three, five mm -hmm. and then the four, five. So those are your ellipticals. You've yeah. got Vegas, two, 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 seven, three, five, four, five. Now the square model, like you saw in that last video is a four, five, 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 and six, five. So it's more towards the higher end because when I, those ones don't luff as easy. They're a little bit more unstable if you're just luffing and want to cruise down the coast in high winds. Mm -hmm. So the elliptical ones, I like a little bit better for that. And my feedback from my riders that you've got to get it to some of the intermediate and beginner riders because they're feeling stuff that's different than you. And they get on it, oh, wait, this elliptical is way easier for me to love and handle. But when you get into that day when it's six to eight knots and you cannot get foiling, like even my wife, she was, didn't like the square model, having all kinds of problems with it. And I'm like, I put her out and it's fairly windy. Then we have one day where it's not very windy. She goes out with the four or five elliptical and she kept touching the tips and she's getting all upset. And I go, okay, here, now try the square model. She goes out <laughs> and gets right up. She's like, Oh, okay. Now that I get it. <laughs> Classic. So those wings you have available now for sale? You have them on Maui? No, those are all prototypes. As yeah. everybody who are having problems getting wings, those will probably show up in September. If we're lucky. I said. Yeah. It's like hard to get the fabrics building. even, right? Yeah. yeah. We're going to start building them in August and we're going to ship them in September and then Nice. How am I shipping them? Do they have to go in a container or do I get a good rate to air freight them in? Well, we won't know until we actually have the product and then yeah. see how it's going to take to ship. Yeah, let's talk about that a little bit, the whole pandemic thing and like what, how did it affect you and your business? I know shipping's been a nightmare, like getting stuff shipped in containers and stuff like that, but 
other than that, like, how did the whole pandemic work out for you on Maui? The pandemic here on Maui, it was, we're out in the, to where there's not as many people over here. They shut down the islands. Nobody was allowed in and people didn't want to leave because they couldn't get back in type of thing. So I was in Florida when all this happened, we were doing a tour over there and demos all over the place. And then they're like, Hey, they're going to shut down the state. We got to fly back. So you're like, on a mad rush to get back home. And then I stayed there for, uh, since last March, you know, did I go anywhere? I think I went to Oahu last month when they finally opened it up to where I could go without all kinds of tests and get my nose probed and everything. That's the first time I went anywhere. Yeah. But what happened on Maui is they closed down the beaches. We're not allowed to go to Kanaha. They closed it all down and that's where we were all winging from but you're allowed to go to the harbor. So we go to the harbor and what ended up happening was everybody had nothing to do and started learning how to go wing foil. They closed down the canoe guys because the six man canoe has your two close quarters and they wouldn't let them do a six man canoes and they have all the lessons and stuff and teaching and races. So they closed down basically the canoes where we do the wing foiling, and then the wing foilers just took over. There was no trap boat traffic, and all there was a bunch of wing foilers. And all of a sudden, you've got kids and grandmas and old windsurfers who hadn't windsurfed in 25 years coming back into the water. And it's it was just crazy. There's some days there was 50 or 60 people down there, and it's still going on down there now. It started a whole uh, winging. This COVID started a winging revolution on on so, Mount. A big community down there yeah that's yeah. awesome and then more recently you had that you had a go foil get together at that at a big house over there and i know my friend derek hamasaki went over there and stuff and talk a little bit about that that was great we do this usually once a year we have we rent we have a friends that have the access to the house down there and he lets us go into it for a weekend or whatever we're trying to do. So we do a go foil weekend and it's called come ride with us. And then we invite everybody from the outer islands that are go foil riders like Derek and Kalani and Leo and Todd and all these guys come over. They stay in the house and then all of the locals that are go foil riders of Maui come down and ride with them. And we those guys just have a blast they it's like one of the best places in maui that if you could own a house that would be one of your top picks wind sports that's where that's the property you want yeah just launch right out of there there's for the summertime it's the best place for winging i feel on maui it's there's waves right out front and the boys, we I take my boat there. Some of the videos, my boat's right out front. And there we use the boat to to get up to Maliko and film them coming down. Peter King was taking all kinds of videos from the boat. And the boys from Oahu and Kauai, all they want to do is do a downwinder from Maliko. And I'm like, <laughs> the best fun is right out there in those Go waves. back and forth. <laughs> the waves. And they're like, no, we want to do downwinders. So yeah. They just want to do two downwinders a day and just come back to the house or go to the harbor to do the, the full Monty and they just have a blast. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, it sounds like they had a, a lot of fun. They were definitely posting a lot of videos and photos from that, from that trip. I was jealous. Derek, 
Yeah. yeah, your buddy Derek, he's will do two downwinders, and then at the end of the day, he'll take Fuzzy or who else was he with Garrett, and they just take off for an evening run to the harbor. It's like they can't get enough. It's getting it's after five o'clock. The wind's getting a little sketchy down by the harbor. No, we're going to the harbor, and they just yeah. take off from the har- house, and then now they're down to the harbor. Just great times. Yeah, what you call sketchy wind on Maui is for us is probably pretty good conditions on Oahu. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny it's a joke when they all show up and i check the forecast on wing guru before they come over and i go okay forecast looks good and the boys are like okay what do we need to bring i go make sure you bring your three just in case and then when they get over here it's blowing hell again it's 35 knots every day and i go when was the last time you guys were in this this kind of wind and they go last year when we were here (laughs) (laughs) yeah we don't get 35 knots on oahu really rarely (laughs) <laughs> Unless it's like a hurricane up. coming through. Sorry. Yeah, we're driving up the coast and we're going back up to Maliko. And then you start to see lanes and just past Mama's Fish House for people who know the area. You get up to Okipa, you see all these white cats. And then it was Derek or Fuzzy, one of them goes, he goes, you know what? We see little patches of white caps like that in, in, in our courses in Oahu and Kauai, but we don't see the whole ocean look like that. The whole ocean's white, white cats all the way to Kahului Harbor. So they just, they love it over here. Yeah, it's like smoke on the water. Yeah. But but yeah, tell us about... Four or five with a, the 5.0 board. So that thing's like 85, 87 liters. Mm-hmm. And, and a four or five wing. So oh. when, you, when you ride with the wind, uh, wing powered up versus just ha- holding it on the side, like what is, I guess you just have more speed or what, why do you do it sometimes? What, why do you hold on to the wing versus holding it next to you, depowered? Me being an old windsurfer, I like that style of being able to jam turns with full power and just feeling the juice of it. I could turn sharper and turn harder like that when I'm windsurfing, as opposed to luffing like this is not as, I can't turn as quick. It's still a lot of fun to turn luffing, but windsurfing style turn, that gets back to my roots to where I really liked it. So are you working on any um, new thing, new moves or new tricks or anything like that? Or what are you into these days? Like when you go wing flipping, are there any tricks you're trying to learn or Anything like that? Occasionally, I'll go into trying to learn some new tricks. Like the, what was I doing the other day? It's like the end of the one video, I tried to do a luffing move at the end of attack. I drag the wing behind me while I'm tacking, as opposed to putting the wing up above my head when I'm tacking. Oh, yeah. Behind the back? Yeah, behind the back, luffing tack. And that was one of the things I was working on this week. But I've got a lot of new racing foils that showed up i'm supposed to test for you know production that comes out in several months so the last three days i've been just going super fast trying the really small wings because we had a race what was it the Padalamua race we did two weeks ago from maliko to kanaha and in that one you get to experiment with a little bit of your fastest foils and sheet it in the whole way going downwind and so I'm progressing with the feedback I got from that to try and make something even faster than what I was on. So, this, so like, yeah. in the video, this was your wife, Carla? Which or, that's Carla right there. That's yeah. that. Seven what size wing is that? That looks tiny. 
the two seven that's a magic size for maui because it's blowing 35 constantly this summer yeah and a lot of people are having problems riding because they're getting beat up out there but you see how solid that wing is it's really rock solid and easy to ride in a lot of wind yeah and so you went on a downwinder with uh, a 70 year old friend of yours there? <laughs> Is that yeah he, yeah, he was having a blast. Yeah. Had a, had a lot of fun with that. He was talking about doing his, his downwinder. This guy right here, this is Ken right here. And this is his wife. And this is Alan. They're talking about it before we go. And it wasn't very windy that day. That's really wind for Maui. Uh -huh. So, the he had a little bit of trouble getting up coming back in after he fell in so this was his first downwinder so he was just really happy that we all went with him and that's the great thing about winging you've got a 70 year old guy just having a blast he's learned a new sport and he's just like oh my god this is fun yeah. so i'm teaching or leading a, a young lady i think she's 70 years old down at the harbor right now, use the 5085 leaderboard. And she's just, she's an old, older windsurfer who just, you know, been windsurfing for years. And now she started foiling. And she sent me text last night, says, Oh my God, I got foiling today. It was the most foiling I've done so far. Oh, I'm having so much fun. And it's just, there's a lot of people in all different age groups really gravitating to this winging thing. Yeah. What would you say, like for you, what, why is winging so addictive and why is it so fun? I think that one of the best aspects of winging is that you're combining the foiling, like what I've been doing, stand-up foiling waves or stand-up foiling while I'm racing down the coast. And you've got this wing that can let you do all of that in case you can't get enough power to get going again you just sheet in with your wing and get going again like the stuff we're doing out downwind like the other that other video where i'm just surfing downwind with three five mm -hmm. you can't i've done lots of wind surfing downwinders kiting downwinders but there's nothing like winging downwinders you just cruise and you're surfing down the coast and riding these waves and you can't slow down like that on your windsurfer. As soon as you unsheet, you're going to stop. And right. kiting is just, you're, you can't, you're not connected with the water as much. You're more connected with your kite when you're kite foiling. You know, you're outrunning the waves a lot when you're kite foiling. Yeah, and you can't completely depower it and just put it, put it aside, basically, you know? Yeah, when you start doing that, what ends up happening, you forget about your kite, and then the kite drops falls up. Yeah, it drops out of the sky. Yeah, and Alan, because I interviewed both Alan and Mark Rappahorse, and they both said that, yeah, basically, Ken, Ken Winner got into it when basically they used to do the, the stand-up paddle downwinders together, and then Ken was struggling to get going with the paddle, so he, that's why he started making those wings, so he could keep up with Alan and, and Mark doing the downwinders, I guess foiling and then yeah that's how they got interested in it too when ken started making all of that stuff alan gravitated to it straight away he was because alan looked across the street from ken right so they could test together and hey you want to try this thing and let's go you know test this model and i need some feedback so he uses alan as a test partner they were yeah. just tested two days ago and you know where it is from Alan, the latest, greatest stuff from Ken is, is ripping. Ken's always been progressing that. And that's how he started. He was 
paddling from Kuau with Alan all the time. And that was the old Maliko 200 days trying mm -hmm. to go downwind foiling. And I think Ken kept hurting his shoulder and it was too much on him. And that got him into winging. Life are winging downwind fanatics now. Yeah. I've been, I've been trying to get Ken Winner on the show too. One day I'll, I'll hopefully get him to agree to come on. <laughs> and yeah, and you too, I've been trying to get you on the show. So thanks for finally doing it. But uh, one, one thing I always like to ask everybody is like your, your skills, your water sports skills, is it a result of your like kind of God-given talents or your natural born talents? Or is it like practice and spending time and work, working on it, repetition and so on? For me, it's a little bit of both. I've got pretty good balance and stuff and not super stupid or anything. So I figure these things out pretty fast. But for other people, it's some people are just raw talents that just pick it up. You can't believe like an Austin Kalama or Caden Pritchard that just got, they're just oozing talent. And then other people just have to work at it. Say, you got to practice this. You've got to dial in your equipment. You've got to figure out, okay, I'm getting too much lift. What is causing that? Do I need to move my mask back or forward? And some people really have to work at it hard. And it just comes from repetition. And it's like riding a bike. You got to get used to it. Mm -hmm. And me, I've been foiling so long and made all of these terrible kite foils in the beginning. So I learned to ride all of this crummy stuff and what was causing it. So I'm at an advantage to get on something and go, oh, we should do this to make this feel balanced where a lot of my friends, I have to get on their equipment and say, oh, wait a minute, this doesn't feel right. You need it to feel like this, and this is what you should to do. So mm -hmm. there's a lot to learn about what is causing you to feel like you're overfoiling or you got too much lift or not enough lift. Are you doing a lot of this porpoising? That usually means you don't have enough lift. You need a little bit more lift to have something to steady against. If it's doing this all the time, it's like, Wherever you point the foil, it goes. So put a little more lift in it, have something to stand on. Just yeah. little things like that, you know, or just little tips that some people take a, a while to learn what that is all about. I get those questions all the time. So what are some tips that you give to beginners that are, are trying to get into foiling or wing foiling? What are some good pointers that people can use to, to get started or progress? What I recommend that you try to get in some fairly flat water where you don't want it real bumpy when you're first learning to wing. And you want to have, if you could pick your ideal wind conditions, it would be like 15 knots steady wind to where you can put on the wing, feel the wind and know exactly where it's coming from. Put on a fairly big foil and you need to try to stay closer to the center of your board. If you're with straps or without straps, be closer to the center line of the board. That's where you have your best balance. And you got to remember that foiling is a front leg sport. You got to learn to, when I get up, don't lean back like you're surfing or windsurfing. You got to lean forward. So you're almost standing up more vertical and be towards the front of the board. You get up, it's more like you're standing on your front quad. You're not on your back quad. Don't put your shoulders backwards towards the back of the board. So those are some of the first tips when you're first learning to wing. I like this picture. It shows that really well, yeah? Le leaning yeah. on your front foot. <laughs> yeah. She is all the way forward. And he, look at how she's standing on that front quad. 
all of her wings right there. And she's pretty vertical. So that's, you need to be balanced. And she's basically in the center of that board. So you have a good platform to feel that foil in the, in the center of it. Some people like Derek will ride his feet all cup of kai all over the board. I know. But, He's got it like really almost diagonal, like on yeah. one yeah, one on each side of the board. But but Derek's a freak. So yeah, he definitely is. Cool. So I guess what I wanted to ask you too is do you ever have like days where like everything clicks and you're like totally in the zone and you everything just works and you can pull off all kinds of tricks and then the next day you're using the same gear and the same conditions and you're just like not feeling it and you're cooked. I, that happens to me all the time. And I'm wondering, what is it? Why, why can I be in that zone? Why, why do I feel it sometimes? And why don't I other times? And do you have any tips on how to get into that state of mind or, or like where you, where everything clicks? Oh, I'm not sure how to, how to do that. I don't usually have that problem where normally when I'm, not having a good day it's because it's too windy or i took the wrong equipment but the you have to learn that too it's hey you might think every day is the same but it might not be the same you know and you're just not aware of it but another thing could be that you've been going hard all week and you need a break <laughs> you need to rest it a little bit and you're just you ran out of gas yeah you that's know, true i mean I, I notice sometimes when i take a break for a few days and then i go back out again i'm like all fresh and i can yeah it's everything works way better than when after a long session when you get tired that's when you hurt yourself and stuff too at the end of the long session yeah i was racing around with peter slate yesterday and i did a whole full first session and did three laps around our course that we ride and uh, then he shows up he goes hey come on let's go and then we went back out and I proceeded to start falling all over the place. And okay, you better wrap it up. You, you, you spent your load today. Just go back to the beach. Yeah. I was just swimming everywhere. <laughs> so if yeah, you, you got to know. You got to know when to stop. Sometimes, right? Yeah, you got to know when to stop. I didn't do it the other day, and it was really windy. And I proceeded to put three holes in my wing with flipping my foil upside down, and hadn't done that in a while. But I managed to do it the other day when I got real tired. Yeah. So yeah, another question I always like to ask, like a lot, a lot of people during the pandemic felt like lonely or frustrated, depressed, whatever. And just when you're having a, a bad day or something like that, what do you do to make yourself feel better, get in, into a better state of mind? And but we're gonna say that you can't go wing foiling or go in the waters what else do you do because everybody says that oh i just go wing foiling i feel fine but what do you do to make yourself put yourself in a better state of mind if, if you feel feeling down or something shoot i don't usually have those problems but what i do notice that some of the people that do have these problems is they watch too much of the news and it's hey don't go in there and start dwelling on what they're all, you know, talking about and all of the problems that are, you know, happening worldwide or whatever the latest thing is going on. Go watch some nice movies or listen to some music. Do not watch the news. That'll bring you down. 100% agree. I, they're just trying to, they're just trying to sensationalize everything, right? Make it worse than it is. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So is there anyone you want to thank for helping you out over the years or that? supporting you the main people what I, the way i hope revolved around this lifestyle would be my parents but just having the 
the balls and the foresight to just jump into this windsurfing thing back in the early days. It was a chant, a risky business to just, hey, you're supporting the whole family and we're going to do it by doing this windsurfing stuff. So they've supported me, my brother, both my sisters were expert windsurfers back in the day. And that was got us on this path to basically our whole life revolved around wind sports after that it revolved around the water it's just you know it was just perfect timing we went on a trip to the virgin islands and just got just got really fortunate and so your whole family was passionate about it. it's not like it's not like like tiger woods his dad like always pushed him to play golf or something like that you know he became super good golf player but then also the kind of a troubled person that seemed so for you it was like you were always passionate about it and loved doing it yeah we always loved doing it it was like we were all we grew up around sports we played football in the neighborhood we were baseball in the neighborhood we were, went through little league we went through football little league and all of that stuff and so we were always around sports so when this came out it was like like doing another sport we were just doing it in the water and we mm -hmm. just gravitated to it all the kids did and And it was just, when you go to those races, your adrenaline gets all up when you're doing well. And it's, it's one of those things too, when you have your, my brother, we're like a year apart and we were like two of the best windsurfers in the world. And we always practice together and we're always trying to beat each other and having that really helped us get to where we were. It's like a uh, sibling rivalry a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. You can look at Finn and Jeffrey Spencer now. Yeah. You see the same thing. It's two brothers, pretty close in age, just always with each other, and they push off of each other. They're doing sure. flips, racing downwind, and it's it really helps to have somebody that good as your training partner, and you're always together. And you plus you've got a little bit of a thing. I gotta beat him. He's my brother. You know. Yeah. That, that really worked out great for us. Yeah, awesome. Would you say that foiling or wing foiling is an addiction? Like it's like something you you crave. And is there a dark side to it? Is there a dark side to being addicted to foiling? For for me, yeah, I'm, I'm really addicted to all types of foiling, but the wing foiling, especially when the conditions are great, I go to wing foiling, especially sometimes if it's blowing like hell for a while, I'll, I'll go downwind foiling and paddle with Dave and, and stuff. That's what he really likes to do. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, you just, it's just so much fun that you gravitate to it. The, uh, what was the rest of the question? There? Oh, I, I was asking if there's a dark side, like what I, I find oh, myself actually trying to get all my work done more quickly so I can get on the water because it's like blowing outside or something like that. But so for me, I, I find it as motivating me to get my work done more quickly and be more more effective or productive or whatever. But I, I just wondering if, because usually addiction is like, has a negative connotation, right? So is there, is it a good thing or a bad thing? For me, it's a good thing, but I've got an excuse because I, I tell my job. wife, I'm going to the office, you know, <laughs> She's like, I don't want to hear about it. So I've got an excuse, but there's a lot of people. I heard this from Leo the other day. He goes, man, my one buddy is having a whole lot of problems when he's, you know, going to have, problems with his marriage and stuff and i'm like what is he into drugs or something because no man he's into foiling <laughs> <laughs> i'm like oh i guess some people take it to, yeah he never goes home and all he wants to do is go winging so 
I guess there is some people out there that do have a crazed addiction going on. <laughs> yeah, for sure. So is there um, anyone else you, you think I should interview for the, on the Bhutanet show about wing foiling? Wing foiling, yeah. I would try to get a hold of, let's see, Ken Winter would be a really good guy. Yeah. Uh, you've already done Alan. He's one of the, the main guys that would do it over here. Shoot, I don't know. Maybe for wing foil, who would be a good wing foiler? Ooh. Actually, I should try to interview um, Derek, actually. Derek Hamasaki, I think, would be oh, fun to yeah. talk to. <laughs> I just thought oh, we've been talking about him a bunch. Derek, yep. He would be a good guy to, to go with. He's a, Derek's a funny guy because I make all kinds of stuff all the time for people all over the world and stuff. They just love it, this and that. But for Derek, he's got these different ideas about what he feels and this and that. And it's like hard to make stuff for Derek because he's just, he's a special rider. He'll like this one tail wing that I hate and he just loves it. And it's just, it's funny. It's hmm. I give him a hard time all the time. So, why are you doing that? How come you're riding that thing? And he's, I just love it. It's what I'm used to, you know. And it's, yeah. he's a great Classic. guy. Classic, yeah. So, do you have any special message for those people that are still watching? I usually say it's just like a tiny sliver of people that watch till the very end. We get like most people have oh, left I by now, but. <laughs> <laughs> so, do you have any special message for those still watching? Shoot, I would. Just tell you that if you are an older windsurfer or kiter or whatever you really should try this wing the the wing foiling it's less pounding on your body and stuff and once you learn how to do it you're just easing across the water and it, you could get you've got places you can go to that you normally wouldn't be able to kite or whatever there's easy access to get into the water if it all goes wrong you just paddle back in with your wing behind you it's just a great fun sport. You can do it in, in pretty light wind and we'll probably get to where we can do it in even lighter winds in the future. Yeah. So it sounds like you think that this is going to be become a pretty big sport globally, right? I think so, especially in Europe, because anybody who knows windsurfing, Europe really is popular in Europe. It blew up in Europe tenfold over what it ever did in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I could see that there would be thousands and thousands of wingers over in Europe, all of, between Germany and France and all the lakes. So even Switzerland has some really key places for windsurfing and stuff over the years. And some of those lakes, Italy and Lake Garda, it's probably already blowing up there. It's mm -hmm. really going to get popular and it could get more popular than windsurf. Yeah. No, I think so too. Yeah, I was. I interviewed Baltz Miller. I think it was like January or February, and he said it was freezing cold in Switzerland, and he said like the lake was crowded with people <laughs> with wing <laughs> So that's kind of nuts. But yeah. yeah, all right. Thanks so much. I think that's a good note to end it on. So thanks so much for your time and finally coming on the show. Good luck with everything, with your new products. All right, a lot, Robert. Good talking to you. Yeah, good talking to you too. Thanks for sharing all those cool stories. All right, cool. All right, have a great rest of your day. Aloha. See you. Aloha. All right, thanks for sticking around for the whole show. I really appreciate it. I always joke that only about 5% of those who click on the video actually watch the whole thing. So you are part of that elite 5%. Congratulations. And thank you, all of you 
who support Blue Planet. You're the ones who make it possible for us to put together this show. And I really appreciate everybody who supports Blue Planet. And then also make sure to check out our new shop in Haleiwa, right next to the Rainbow Bridge. We do stand-up paddle, kayak, and surfboard rentals there. And we have a really cool shop with lots of goodies. So if you're visiting Oahu, make sure to come by the new Blue Planet shop in Haleiwa. I hope to come out with another Blue Planet show soon. So stick around and also check out the podcast version of the Blue Planet show on your favorite podcast app. Just search for the Blue Planet show and it should come right up. So thanks again for watching. Take care, everyone. See you on the water. Aloha.